Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Today, I'd like to welcome our uh, esteemed guest here, Shep Hyken. I think it's going to be an amazing conversation because one of the things that really drives Shep is delivering amazing experiences for his customers. And he is, in fact, his title is Chief Amazement Officer. <laughs> and he, he's been doing this for quite a while, but he's also an author of seven best-selling books that have made the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestseller list. And uh, I think we should just jump right in here. Shep, how are you? I'm doing great. And I just, not that I want to call you out, I have an eighth book. It just ah. came out. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. Actually, not that long ago. I'll be back. How to You'll get customers back. to come back again and again. Just <laughs> out a few months ago, and we're really excited about it. So nice. Just have to put that in there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so my question to you is, how did you get to where you are now about customer experiences, creating amazing? Because I don't think you just woke up one day. Because I'm kind of interested in some of the aha moments that got you here. And to this realization that, you know, this is what's really going to make a difference. Because a lot of people, I think, talk about this now, but I think you've gotten to a much deeper level of understanding this. Well, thank you. I have many aha moments within my career. And my first uh, presentation in front of, um, it wasn't a huge group, maybe 25 people. Uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. And it was in 1972. Wow. (laughs) That's a long time ago. Okay. Almost uh, 50 years ago, right? I was 12 years old at the time. Don't tell anybody I'm that old. I know I'm a bald guy. I don't look that old. Bald guys, typically they stay looking this way. And then one day they start looking old. Anyway, I had my first business, a birthday party magic show business. And my mom dropped me off at the uh, person's doorstep. It was a Wednesday afternoon. And I performed for 25 screaming little kids. All right. And I got paid. I thought pretty well. Back then, it was $14 plus a tip. Actually, that is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And today, that's like $2,906. But it was a lot of money for a kid. And honestly, today, that would probably be the equivalent of $80 to $100 uh, for 45 minutes or so worth of doing a magic show. Now, that isn't the aha moment. Uh, that evening, my mom said, write a thank you know, My dad said, a week from now, call the parents, make sure they were happy, thank them again. Uh, get get some insights, find out what tricks they like the most. They'll tell you, what were the tricks that you like the most? He says, you do this enough times, everybody will tell you about the same tricks and you also notice what people aren't talking about. Those tricks are important to uh, get rid of and replace with tricks that people will still talk about. So that was really cool. And I had no idea that that was about you know, showing appreciation, which is part of the customer experience, getting feedback, listening to the customer and making improvements as a result of, of that feedback process mm-hmm. improvement. So I graduate college. I see a couple of motivational speakers and I think to myself, well, I could probably do that. Now, by the way, I had graduated from doing birthday parties to working in nightclubs and corporate events by the time I got into high school and college. Believe it or not, at age 16, I was working at the Playboy Clubs, which is an wow. unbelievable <laughs> job for a 16-year-old kid. But I digress. So 
I'm deciding I, if I'm going to be a speaker like these guys, because I didn't really want to just do magic shows. Because when you do a magic show, most magicians do the same show over and over again. If you go to Las Vegas, you get to do two shows a night, five or six nights a week until the contract's over. And to me, that's like being in jail. You have to do the same thing every day. It gets boring. For an artist, probably not boring. For a guy like me that's got ADD, wants to do a lot of things, very boring or very crazy. Anyway, So I saw these guys. I went to the bookstore. And back then, a, a the, the business book section was one shelf, not racks and racks of books. And I started pulling out all the books that interested me. And I bought several books that day. I remember it was 1983 uh, or actually, yeah, about 82. It's about 1982, 83. Uh, I bought In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters. Unbelievable book, which even though the companies aren't around today, the ideas behind what made these companies amazing and excellent are as relevant as ever. Um, and I bought a couple of books by Carl Albrecht and Ron Zimke, I believe, Service America, America at your... So these books were all focused, and I didn't even think about it till I started to see the commonality on customer service and what we call today customer experience as well. Aha. There you go. That's an aha moment. There you go. And that's where it all started. Now, along the way, recognizing some of the great companies I've worked for over the years, um, I've learned so much. And each time I say, oh my God, I can't believe that's how they use this information. That's how they do what they do. All of these are aha moments. Uh, several years ago, I realized I had another major aha moment. And that was in my speeches and we have workshops where trainers go out and do training programs. We're quoting stats and facts from different research studies that we have access to. And I thought, why do I keep quoting other people? Why don't I start quoting myself? So I actually engaged with a research company. I came up with a whole list of questions. By the way, I started with, here are the stats that I quote. Let's reverse engineer and figure out what the questions were that get us to this point. And uh, that I started my first surveys and now I'm in, into research and we sell the research and we sell sponsorships to it. And another aha moment. And well, I think what, I think I what you're trying to do is aha in, moments. Yeah. You, you mentioned this, I think early on when you're as a, even as a kid, what you're looking for are some of those insights, right? You're, you're having these conversations with the people you're talking to and you're getting those insights. So I'm curious, how do you define insight? Cause I think a lot of people use the word, but I don't think they always have the right, definition of it. To me, the insight is looking at something and saying, that's, how does that apply to me? How does that, what will that do for me? And if I take action on it, that insight becomes something more than just a thought. So uh, really it's observation turning into action. Wow. I should write that down. <laughs> <laughs> is it like a deeper truth that you can actually act upon? Yeah. Yeah. So it's so easy to watch and observe and your life goes by with doing nothing but making observations. It's when you can use the observation, then it becomes insightful. And to me, insight is more than just observation. Insight is, okay, I'm internalizing. I get it. it I'm now a better person because of it, or I can do something as a result of it. And how much of this, you know, pursuing insights, um, is a factor of intuition, curiosity, empathy, um, things like that. 
So I don't know about the empathy part, but the curiosity and, and all that, I think that's really important because if you, uh, I'm a very curious person. I'm a, I'm a very, uh, I'm a learner. Uh, I, to this, I would admit, I don't read as much as I did prior to the pandemic because so much of what I read was on an airplane. And when I'm doing, you know, 40 to 50 speaking engagements and I'm on an airplane almost every single week, I was reading an average of, you know, about 40 books a year, sometimes even more, uh, because I had the time on an airplane, perfect time to do it. Uh, so I'm, I'm a ferocious learner and reader. And I think that that's really important. If you want to, you can let life pass you by. There's something I learned, it's called the strategic byproduct. I learned this from Dan Sullivan, mm-hmm. who actually is the strategic coach. I went to his program for more than 20 years, uh, only because of the pandemic where I couldn't travel to Chicago that I stopped going. And now they've started live classes again. So I might, I might head back up there. 20 years I learned from this man. And one of the things to talk about was strategic byproducts. And this is, uh, for some people, life just happens and it goes by them. But when you start to condition your brain to look for the opportunities as a result of what you're doing, these little outside activities, they become byproducts of what the original goal was. For example, um, a strategic byproduct would be my 2021 Achieving Customer Amazement Study. We have a 2020. We've done several studies. We've got 2022 coming out in the next month. Uh, but this is a, pro- a byproduct of me saying, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, I'm quoting other people's statistics. Why am I doing that? I'm supposed to be the thought leader. Wow, maybe I should quote my own statistics. Okay, so by paying attention to what's going on around me, I realized there's an opportunity. So I did this study. And rather than just quote my own statistics, I put it into a a nice little booklet, just like this. You can download it, by the way, free on my website. I'm not pitching this, but I'm just telling you what happens. Sure. Now, I've got this, this, uh, this great report that I've created. Cool. Oh, wait a minute. Some, some of my clients want to share this with their clients. Hmm. Now, what's that worth? I'll bet they'd be willing to pay for that if I were willing to give them some level of exclusivity. So if, if you're in the, uh, let's say, and, and by the way, we work with, with different clients in different sectors, and I'll create a different report for that sector, for like just the customer support, you know, contact center industry. I've got great stats and facts. I put together a report. I write an introduction. The executive of the company writes the foreword. We put their logo on the front of it. That's worth something. So I recognize as I go along that it's not just getting the stats. It's what can I do with the stats? What are the five different ways that I can monetize uh, the work that I'm doing? So it's not, uh, I just don't let it go by me. I call it a strategic byproduct, which is just recognizing that along the way we learn things and uh, we go, aha, that's worth doing something. I think what I, I'm going to translate to a simple formula. I think what you're saying is you often have a destination you're headed towards, which is fine, but don't forget along the way, smell some of the roses and you might see yeah. opportunities that you might say, Hey, this is great. I can do something with this. And I think, and the, you know, I think the universe has a way of talking to you sometimes. It's just a matter of you being observant and listening and say, Hey, there's a real opportunity here. You know, in a great way, let me bring it to a personal level too. Um, you know, I travel a lot, travel around the world. And my wife always wanted to go on a safari. And so I got a booking in South Africa. And I said, 
strategic byproduct. Let's go three days early and go on a safari. You know, so the the uh, that's just an example of saying, oh, I didn't just get booked to go there. Let's take advantage of it and let's figure out something. And we also, of course, we know we're going there, so we call clients. Uh, like international associations we're a part of that we know have chapters in different parts of the world. So, um, you know, when I, when I go to Australia, Singapore, all these different places, I let them know, hey, I'm going to be in the area if you want to use me. That's kind of a byproduct to what's already the intent of going there, the original destination. Yeah. So I like the way you think about that. So I'm curious, you know, we've kind of gone from customer satisfaction to customer experience. And I think it's true. I think, you know, I'm not sure exactly when it happened, and you can probably tell me that, but it seems like we're now as consumers looking to buy experiences versus products. So my question is, when do we go from kind of like customer satisfaction to experiences? And, and what can you say about people really looking to buy experiences versus products now? Sure, sure. And really, it's, it's customer service versus experience is what you first said. Then you said customer satisfaction okay. <laughs> experience. But no, no, I just want to make sure. Here's what happened. My definition of service and experience it starts out that customer service is what I was into many, many years ago, and I'm continuing to uh, along that lane. And somebody real smart one day, it wasn't me, said, hey, let's call it something sexier than customer service. And that is, let's call it customer experience. And then somebody even smarter than that person figured out customer experience is more than just service. It's everything related to the experience the customer has. And by the way, many people thought customer service was just what you reacted to when right. there was a problem, a complaint, or a question that the customer has. And I always felt it was more philosophical or cultural that it should be ingrained in a company. There should be a department that manages the support, the questions, the, the, the complaints, but customer service runs throughout. Same thing with customer experience. When you start realizing experiences, anything the customer experiences. For example, I may go to an Apple store and I may love the people who take care of me. They're knowledgeable, they're helpful. But then I buy the, the phone, okay, or the iPad. And I get this box and I open it up and I go, man, this is cool. Well, that's part of the experience and it's really important. So now we have this wider range of what experience is. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's really what people need to be thinking about customer service as we know it as a support or place to get answers is a, uh, portion of customer experience. It's a big portion, by the way. Yeah. I, uh, I know what you you're can saying. have a box that's not so pretty and, and it has a good phone in it. Uh, and if you marry it with an incredible experience, people don't really pay that much attention to the packaging. But when you put two of them together, wow, now you've added something exponentially bigger. You know, the bigger the bigger the impact, the whole experience is super cool. I understand what you're saying. I think customer service is a component of the customer yep. experience. And my question is, where would you say to companies that where does customer experience actually begin? Yeah, the moment the customer starts thinking about not even your company, but what they want, they go online they do a Google search. I mean, this is pretty preliminary. Or maybe they've seen a billboard or an ad in a newspaper magazine on an airplane or something like that. And so you've planted a seed in their mind and they're going to eventually find you. Mm -hmm. So that just the moment they start thinking about that, they want it, you know, and I believe uh, I talk about moments of truth in a different way. But uh, the Google version of this is the zero moment of truth where you don't even know the company you're looking for, but you land on this site. Uh, as a result of a Google search, and you're you're really now into the experience. Is your website intuitive? Is it easy to find the information? Are you making 
compelling me to get more? Uh, is there a call to action? And does that mean I'm going to uh, download something of interest? I'm going to click on something that gets me to another page about what I'm buying. Is there a phone number that I need to call? And as a result of that, I'm talking to somebody, interacting with somebody. All of this is leading up to me making a purchase. And people think that customer service happens after um, the experience of buying. No, it happens throughout the whole situation. To me, the digital experience is now part of service. Uh, how again, how easy it is, convenient it is, intuitive it is, and then you add, you know, everything else around it, and that's that's experience. I know I'm kind of going back to your earlier question, no, no, it's but fine. it all ties in. Yeah. So, when does uh, the experience begin? I think in the when it's just uh, almost a figment of the customer's imagination. <laughs> I agree. In fact, I find myself often when I'm looking for a product or service, I'm actually looking to see how good is our digital print and, uh, you know, ability to, uh, to interact with them digitally and so on uh, at the same time. But then my next question is, uh, where does the customer experience end or does it? It doesn't. It doesn't. You know, I, I would hate to think you're in a dead end business. And what I mean by that is when the customer finally makes their purchase, it's over. Their needs, the best businesses recognize it's not about getting a customer. It's keeping a customer and getting them to come back over and over again. Now, we work with companies on journey mapping their customers' experiences, and a first-time customer is going to be a different experience than a repeat customer. Uh, a customer who has an issue, concern, problem, complaint is going to come into your customer support world in a different way than they would normally if they were getting ready to purchase. So you need to recognize all of the different ways customers interact with you, plot them out, and understand the journey that they take. Ideally, um, it's like, and I, I jokingly say that I don't know much about this, but I hear that when you have shampoo, you're supposed to lather, rinse, and repeat. Okay. So the uh, repeat part of it means the journey continues and starts over. Um, let me just put it to you real simply. I talk about this concept called renewal, and everybody thinks renewal is based on a subscription or uh, an annual license that they renew. I work with the military and they want people to, you know, recruit people into the military. And then they want people to, after their stint, two years or whatever it is, sign up for other stints, right? And I, I asked, when you start getting these people to want to sign up again? And they said, well, usually two, three weeks, four weeks before they're getting ready to leave, we really start working on them. I go, you know, that's a big mistake. You need to start working on them the day they made the decision to do business with you. <laughs> in, right. a, in other words, the day they decided to enlist. And uh, everything you do, even though it's not going to be easy, they're going to go through boot camp. It's going to be hard. It's going to be time that there's mental pain, maybe even physical pain. And throughout it all, you need to reinforce why this is great. <laughs> so it sounds like, yeah, what you're saying is basically experience is, is also building a rapport, a, a relationship and an ongoing conversation. Yeah. Are you familiar with a gentleman named uh, Joey Coleman? No. Okay. You need to look him up and you need to maybe get him on your, your show here. Joey, if you can, he's a tough guy to, to track down. He's so busy. Joey has this amazing book. That's one of my all time favorite business books called the first 100 days. Actually the book is titled never lose a customer again, but it's focusing on the first 100 days of the, the first time somebody does business with you, the idea behind it being once they decided to do business with you, you confirm over and over again, they made the right decision to do business with you, which leads to moving that transaction 
into a relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay. I always like to use the word interaction over transaction because the interaction is part of something bigger. The transaction means there's finality to it. We go back to that dead end customer. We want to renew the relationship again and again. We want to keep doing things that makes people feel like, yes, I made the right decision. And when it comes time to come back and do business with somebody again, um, you know, I want to make sure it's an easy decision in their mind. They've been, we've been renewing or we've been working on the renewal. So to point this out, most people think of renewal is a, um, you know, a, a subscription. I now have to renew my contract. Anytime the customer, if you have a business where you want a customer to come back, it might be six months, six years from now, you know, we want them to renew by coming back to us the next time. And customer loyalty to me is not defined as a lifetime. It's really defined as every next time opportunity. And if it becomes the next time, every time, then ultimately we have them for a lifetime. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And as part of that relationship building, one of the goals should be to build trust and maintain trust along the way with your customer. And that's what you're doing. You're creating confidence. Uh, I always say that great service plus confidence, which means you trust and you know it's a, the predictable experience. You know that people are always friendly that you deal with there. They're always knowledgeable. They always get back to you quickly. Every time you use the word always followed by something positive, you're actually, uh, as a customer, when that happens in their mind, they're really solidifying the predictable experience. So when you have great service plus the confidence that customer has about what that experience is going to be, that equals potential customer loyalty. And I say potential because sometimes it just equals repeat business, which there's nothing wrong with that. We want that. And that's the setup to uh, what I would call loyalty. But loyalty is more of an emotional connection. Sometimes an emotional connection is just that they know they can count on this to happen. Uh, But other times it might be, oh, I love my inside sales rep in that company, or I love my salesperson in that retail store. So B2B, B2C doesn't make any difference. You have the opportunity to create that relationship that has the connection emotionally. When you first encounter a company or a new client and they tell you, we've been thinking about doing developing customer experience, we've been working on it, what are often things that you see that they're just not getting or or quite doing right? Like are there three things that really usually stand out for you that say, you know, I know you guys are thinking about it's a buzzword, but you're just not, these are the three things that you really need to understand. That's a great question. Um, so I, I always ask, why is this important to you? And some, and ironically, I would say not just a majority, but maybe 80 plus percent of my clients, there's no fear because they aren't good enough. There's fear because they need to stay good enough, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they're looking to sustain the position they're in where their customers love them. And in order to do that, People think, oh, let's do customer service training. And many companies make the mistake of uh, doing it, okay, but not sustaining it. So I always joke, training isn't something you did, it's something you do. Actually, I don't joke about it. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, related to this, how much of this is a relationship of the metrics they're measuring, saying we need to maintain this level? Right. And, and, and is, that, is that where the problem is? Yeah. Yeah, the second part of it, and we're dealing with a major client, major recognizable brand right now. Um, And they have shared, they have incredible insights, but the one thing they're missing is true customer 
what I would call your customer satisfaction type scores, Mm -hmm. the net promoter score, the CSAT. So I think number one, uh, we already mentioned number one. Number two, I want you to have a baseline to work from. So if you're poor at it, that's really important so you can see improvement. If you're nailing it and you want to sustain it, it's really important to know your numbers so that you can maintain that. If you see a dip, you got to figure out where that's coming from. And maybe you'll even see some growth. So um, that's the other part. And then I'd say, uh, uh, and I think was the question, you know, what are the three things? Did you really want them to get that? Yeah, the exact one. Yeah. Right. I want everybody to recognize that customer service and experience isn't a department. It's, as I mentioned earlier, it's more philosophical and baked in the culture, which means that every employee of a company needs to be trained properly on what their role is contributing to the experience. And it isn't that they're dealing directly with the customer. It could be they're supporting somebody that is, or they're part of a big process that's real important to what that customer is going to experience. If I work in a warehouse, I'm probably never going to see the customer. But if I'm supposed to pack a product in a box and I leave something out, I'm going to ruin that customer's experience at the end of the what looks like uh, uh, the the end of their journey when they open up the box and they have their product, but actually it begins a second journey, which is where's the one piece that I need? Now I got to call and talk to support people. Then we've got to go back to the warehouse and ship it out. If that person inside the warehouse doesn't do their job, they erode the experience. Uh, So everybody has a role. We need to train them to the mentality and what we're about. So we need to understand what the vision of service and experience is for the customer. And everybody needs to know that. And then they need to know what their part is and the role they play in that. So it seems like the first challenge for a lot of companies that you work with is getting to have them deliver a good customer experience. But then how do you get from a really good customer experience to amazement? And I think that's a whole other <laughs> level of emotion. And, and there's so many other benefits to that, I think, uh, versus yeah. just a, a, a good experience. And, and, I, and I'd like for you to speak to that. Right. Customer amazement is what I am all about. If you look at the titles to my book, uh, different books, I've got Amaze Every Customer Every Time, The Amazement Revolution, Be Amazing or Go Home. So the word amazement is really important to me. And what's also important is for you and the audience to understand that amazement isn't about being over the top and blowing people away with the most incredible service they've ever had. And by the way, when you go to an iconic brand like uh, the Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons or one of these high, high-end experiences in a hotel, you may get blown away with their service. But their standard is it's always consistent. So here's the interesting thing. I have been preaching for years that amazing isn't over the top. It's just consistently and predictably a tiny bit above average, which means if uh, on a scale of one to five, where one is terrible and five is amazing, you know, you've got one terrible, two fair, three average, there's your average, four good, five very good or amazing, right? Three is average. If you're just a tiny bit better than that three and never really drop down to the three, and when I say tiny bit better, uh, you know who Horst Schultz is uh, at the Ritz Carlton? Right. He, I asked him, because we believe in the same philosophy, go, how much better do people have to be? He goes, 10% better, which means you got to be a 3.3. <laughs> and here's what we've learned. If you're consistently a 3.3 and you don't drop down to mediocrity, which is that average number three, guess what happens? Your customers typically give you a five <laughs> on that scale. Why? Because they'll say, well, they're always friendly. They're all, and I mentioned the word always before. They're always 
um, you know, uh, knowledgeable. They're always getting back to me quickly when I leave a message. That word always followed by something positive. And every once in a while, there'll be a problem that drops in your lap. And by the way, being a one or a two, if the customer says something about it, now you have the chance to get back up. And you have to be a little bit better than average when there's a complaint or a problem. Those are, and those are the opportunities where you can maybe go a little bit above and beyond if necessary. But how much does evo- evoking an emotion play into this as well to getting to amazing? Well, that's what the word always does. Always evokes an emotion from the standpoint of it's predictable and comfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's your emotion. Confidence, comfortable. I know it's going to happen. It's, and, and when you're, and by the way, what is, what is better than average look like? Uh, again, I use that word always. When you're walking down, uh, when, you, when you go to check in at the Ritz, the bellman takes the bags out of your car, looks at your name on the bag tag and says, oh, are you Mr. Hyken? Yes, I am. Oh, welcome to our hotel. And as I'm walking there, the bellman calls the front desk and says, Mr. Hyken, guy without hair, wearing a black sweater. He's walking toward the front desk now. And when I walk up there, my record's already up there and they're going, welcome, Mr. Hyken. How do they know? It's part of their little system. Now, right. is that blow away service? I think maybe it's, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's a surprise, but later on when I see the bellman again and the bellman says, or the doorman says, Hey, Mr. Hyken, have a great day. He used my name is using my name over the top. No, it's a little touch point that's been uh, just added to. I could, as a bellman say, have a nice day, sir. But if I know your name, using your name takes it up just a notch. Sure. That's absolutely. what 10% better looks like. So I think this is a great transition to an area I want to talk about, which is I know you're very much a spokesman and a passion about is the linkage. And, and I want to know how you came to this understanding, um, the linkage between happy customers and happy employees. And, sure, uh, sure. Uh, or maybe some people think it's reverse. I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, I've always believed, uh, you know, so, and I mean, if you look at Herb Kelleher years ago, who was the chairman of Southwest Airlines, right. Uh, they asked him, what's more important, your shareholders? Who do you need to take care of, uh, the customers or your employees? And he thought about it. And at first, it was just a guess. He said, I'm going to go with the employees because we make the employees happy. Then they'll turn around and better engage with the customer. And if the customers are happy, they want to come back and do business with us again. That's going to make the shareholders happy. So he said, let's focus on the customer, on the employee. And Please. he was right. And as you look at the best companies in the world, it's no uh, it's, it's, it's not a surprise that if you go to glassdoor.com and you look at the top companies to work for, oftentimes they're on the same list of the best companies to do business with from the service and experience point of view. And why does that happen? Because as I mentioned, people internally are more, uh, they're happier and they're more engaging. Uh, Baptist Health South, and we use this as a case study in my book, The Amazement Revolution. Uh, we interviewed Brian Keeley, CEO Uh, Actually, I think he's getting ready to retire finally, but he created something he called destination employment, meaning when you come to work at Baptist Health South, this medical system, you will not ever want to leave. This is your destination. You'll get promoted and you'll stay in the company until it's time for you to retire. He says, if we're that good, our employees are fulfilled, they feel good about what they do, they're going to better engage with patients and do, Mm -hmm. do a better job. Now, I recently uh, had a chance, uh, Baker, oh God, just uh, Baker Johnson, Baker Johnson with UJet, great company, great guy. 
And I did an interview and he called me out on this. He said, Shep, I don't believe that's true. I believe happy customers make happy employees. Now he's in the customer support center world. Okay. And what that means is these people are doing nothing but fielding questions or complaints all day long. Questions could be very positive. Just help me. How do I do this? And they feel great. That's easy. What happens when they have a problem or an issue that is uh, negatively affecting? They call a little upset. So here was Baker's idea. He says, if you have happy customers, you're going to have happier employees. Yes and no. But this is where he gets, and, and I don't disagree with him. As a company, we need to make sure there's a process in place. Uh, there's, you know, whatever we do has as little friction as possible. So when the customer finally does call us, if they have to, it's not a real bad experience. In other words, we don't make them wait for an hour before we pick up the phone. You know, that might be one because by the time they had to wait on hold for a long time, that just made them even angrier. Now they're coming at the uh, customer service agent, guns a-blazing. No employee is going to be happy about that, right? I think regardless of the debate, whether it's customers, happy customers, or whatever comes first, I think what we're really talking about, there's a symbiotic relationship here, right? Mm. And that basically the two especially the front line, we're talking about the front line, needs to be empowered to be able to speak to the customers in a way that they can address their needs, first listen to what's going on, but then really right. address them at a level that says, you know, hey, these people get it. Even if, let's say, you make, they, they made a mistake or it was something bad, but they listen and they dealt with it and they appreciate the honesty and the ability to have that ability to resolve it. Right. So here we're going to kind of go full circle with this. Um, to your point, 100% dead on. We need to train our people properly. First, we hire good people. Then we train them the right way, constantly train them, and we empower them to do their jobs. And here's what we want to happen for the customer. Maybe the customer, the first time they called in, wasn't super excited and, and it, they were angry and it was a difficult situation. But we, could tra- we can train our customers that, no, no, you don't ever need to feel that way. We are so good at what we do. And we've been empowered to take care of you that the first time you may be upset, but the second time you call us, it's because you know we're going to take care of you. (laughs) And it's worth the phone call. So in a sense, we have to train the customer to be happy with who we are. And once they are, it's going to make our jobs much easier. So, uh, and I've always said, train the customer to use the tools that will make them happier when they do business with you. And the phone, if that's what they do, pick up the phone is one of the tools. But if we've got this very robust knowledge base on our website where we can say, hey, you know, this, let's, you know, you're in front of your computer, pull up this site. This is where you go. Right. How about this? I, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the name of the company, but their initials are Salesforce. Oh, there we go. <laughs> All right. So, I love Salesforce. Great company. And uh, I was uh, actually using their product. And I said, it's the salesperson who was trying to sell me on using the product. Hey, um, what happens when I have a problem? Do I call in? Do I have to wait? Do I have to put in a ticket, wait a day to get it back? He goes, go into Google and just type this question. How do I do blank? on my Salesforce CRM. But but, but by the way, just to finish this thought, uh, up comes this video that teaches me exactly what to do and I never have to call support and I'm happy with the answer. What's the biggest hurdle most companies have to empower their employees? Management. And when I say management, supervisors, leaders, because they say they want to empower them, but then they they really don't let them. Is that a a question of trust or they just want to, I mean... 
Yeah, it's a question of trust. And guess what it becomes? Then it becomes a problem with culture because the moment I'm told you're empowered to do this and then I go and I do something and I get yelled at and and told I was doing it wrong and the way that's handled, well, I'm never going to do that again. Guess what happens? They're not going to get any empowerment out of me. But instead, what we do is we teach companies, there's a line in the sand, teach your employees that they can go all the way to that line. We do a really cool exercise Uh and I'll give you an example. Um, let's, uh, I have this one client. I love this. And, and this first time I did it, um, I'm trying to remember what his, it doesn't matter. Let's say his name is Dave. Okay. And he's the CEO of the company and he's sitting in the room and we're, we throw the problem out there and we tell the groups, we have them work in small groups and the exercise is what would Dave do? Okay. In other words, this is what we've been taught to do. But if I was the CEO of the company and I had to take care of that customer, the question is, how would I handle that? And we let them play the role of ownership or leadership mm-hmm. and they get to make decisions. And when and then we praise those decisions or we say, that's a great one, but what if we did it this way instead? And what we're doing is using each of these decisions as learning opportunities. Well, in real life, when we've got a customer that has an issue and uh, we tell the people on the front line, here's how it works. You get to try to figure it out. Now, you know, we don't want it to be illegal. We don't want it to be immoral. We don't <laughs> want the company to lose money. Sure. So here's some criteria just to kind of get you started. And we don't want to set a precedent that's going to be a problem later on. And, and depending on what you do, you could figure out what that is. You know, we teach them that. Then they get the right to do what it is they want. But here's the key. They get to go back at a meeting with their manager, maybe even as a group and share, hey, I did something a little different today. I want to tell you what I did. And then the manager or the leader gets to give feedback and say, that was great. Or that was great. I'm glad you took that initiative. Anybody else have another solution how they would have handled that? And now if it was the wrong solution, we started having the discussion about what the right one is. Nobody feels bad. They all feel part of this great learning process. Right. And that's what we need to give, give our people is the, the ability to feel good about the decisions they make. I have a client, one of the, uh, one of the luxurious car companies in the mm-hmm. world, and they have a crew just here in the U.S. They have it worldwide. But I work with the 15 people in the U.S., that are these, it's an automobile manufacturer and these 15 people, their job is if any of the dealerships around the country and in North America, uh, which includes Canada, have a customer that is so difficult to deal with, they don't know what to do. They call their, whoever one of the, the person in their territory is, that person actually flies or drives to this dealership and meets with the customer and figures out how to make them happy. And they have the right. And it doesn't matter if that car is three months old, three years old, you know, 10 years old. They want to make that customer happy. They have the ability to give the customer a 100% refund on their car, regardless of the age. Okay. Now think about that. How often do you think they actually do that? You know, you've got 15 people. They've been doing this for years. How many times a year do you think this happens where they actually give the money back to a customer? Take a guess. Uh, it's hard to guess, but let's say 10% of the time. 10% of the time. Do you know that in the entire time, the answer is zero. They've mm-hmm. never had to give money back because they figure out another way. Uh, and, and they've been empowered to go all the way. That's their line in the sand. Give them all their money back. 
but they know they don't always have to do that. And, and it's like the Ritz Carlton saying to a housekeeper, you can spend up to $2,000 on the customer, the guest, if they have a problem. So just show them where the line is in the sand, teach them how to do it properly and, and let them go do their best work. I think it's a really interesting point you're making because a lot of companies often say we want their employees to take ownership, right? But how can they take ownership if you don't actually empower them to take ownership and, and kind of even act like an owner, right? And I think right. you're right, you know, just define the parameters and so on, but I think, you know, they can take much more ownership. So my question to you is, uh, I've loved this conversation uh, before we end. If there's anybody in the world you could have lunch with on customer insights or uh, anything related to that, uh, who would it be and why? Well, actually, I have the pleasure of interviewing this gentleman later this afternoon. And it's been one of my, well, Horst Schultz, who I've already mentioned with the Ritz-Carlton, would have been one of those people, but I've already had the chance to do it. Today, I get to interview a gentleman named Fred Reicheld. Uh-huh. Do you know who Fred Reicheld is? No. He is the guy that came up with the Net Promoter Score, NPS. And if you think about it, and then for those that don't know it, that is a metric on a scale of zero to 10, what's the likelihood that you would recommend us? And Fred's contention that after, I don't know, 30 years of this metric being out there, companies are using it the wrong way and they're not monetizing the opportunity mm. properly. And I am so excited to be able to interview this guy. If I could take him to lunch, dinner, and spend a week with him, I would love <laughs> to pick this man's brain. And there's other people like Tom Peters. Oh my gosh. You know, that guy is amazing when it comes to understanding customer service and satisfaction. I've had the chance to meet, meet him already, but, but that would be it. I, I think right now, right on, on my, in my scope, is a guy named Fred Reichel. Great. Well, I thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, uh, I think you're going to have a great conversation with uh, him about the net promoter score as well. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. See, I geek out over this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Your passion definitely comes through and that's great. And that's part of how I think you have to have that passion to be able to deliver an amazing experience. So I think that's great. Well, thank you. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.